0: You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. I want to talk to you about Emmanuel, a sign for the ages. And in this series, we are going to look at Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9. Just those three chapters. Isaiah is a beautiful book which is lost on us, mostly in translation because we cannot read it in the original, and so we do not get the poetic presentation. We do not feel the same emotion that it would have enlisted from a reader back then. But nonetheless, we can still see its power bleed through the words off of these pages. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to take some time to look at this. There is something significant that takes place in these three chapters that does not happen elsewhere in Scripture. Up until this time, it is understood that there will be a Messiah and a Savior. In fact, even a king or a judge that will come and deliver the children of Israel that will set the world back in its proper place everything back in order exalting righteousness and doing away with all evil and all iniquity but in this passage that we are going to look at over the next few days there is some prophecies that shook the religious world if you will or the religious minds of those day and so our key verse for this series will be two verses, and it will be first Isaiah chapter number 7 and verse number 14, and then Isaiah chapter number 9 and verse number 6. So I want us to go there, and we will begin by looking at Isaiah chapter number 7 and verse 14, and then we will look at Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Now what I have done for the last few days is I have read this passage through, and as many different translations as I could. I've done as many word studies as were possible in the available time and read as much as I can to understand it, and it really unfolds. But let's look at this. Isaiah chapter number 7 and verse number 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Everybody say a sign. That sign is literally a token evidence. It is proof of what he's going to do. And he goes on, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Amen. We know what that means because in the book of Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, he quotes this very passage and he he lets us know that it is interpreted as God with us. Two times, Emmanuel is referenced in chapter number 8, and the second time it's referenced, it's literally referenced as God with us. Matthew wasn't making that up. He was quoting its original definition. Now we are familiar, I hope, in the Christmas season, I hope that we are familiar with this passage of Scripture before and we can lift this scrap this passage of scripture out of its present context and we can take it out of Isaiah and we can look at it individually examine it and we know the meaning that it represents in the broad scope of eternity the same is true for Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 let's go there Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 and he says this for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we, we see Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, and we understand what this verse means and what this verse is speaking to as well. We just uh, s- summarized a or concluded a series a few months back ago called Absolute, the Revelation of God. And in seven short weeks, we looked at eight unique attributes of deity. And we know that those attributes of deity were ascribed to Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament. And also, specifically, undeniably, inexcusably, Jesus Christ was in every way fulfillment of those attributes. He claimed the right to those attributes. He identified Himself being that same person Amen, God Almighty. And one of the verses that we used was Isaiah chapter 9, 6 to help us unfold the identity of Jesus Christ. And what a beautiful thing. And we will look at that in a couple weeks. But these two passages of Scripture that we read, these two verses, are ones that we are very familiar with in the Christmas narrative and the setting. And uh, it's something often that we'll put in a children's program, or we'll quote, or we'll read about, we'll sing about, we'll preach about, we'll talk about. And it's great. But these promises of God did not come, amen, or arise in a vacuum, but they were given in a historical context in the timeline of the people of God and the children of Israel. And so within that context... There is a further understanding of of the prophecy, of the promise, of this beautiful thing that Isaiah brings to us. We lift it out of that context often, and we identify, we understand what it means for eternity, but if we can see it within the context that it is given to us, wow, there's even more depth of meaning there, and we can understand the immediate meaning for the children of Israel that would have been reading this scripture at that time. And believe it or not, but the word of God, amen, is powerful, and this is a living word, and it still has the same relevance, I believe, to us today in 2017. So while we may understand the significance In eternity of these prophecies, we can lose focus of the immediate understanding that God portrayed through the prophet Isaiah. And so that is what we are going to attempt to do in the next three weeks, is to take these passages of Scripture that we hold so dearly, that we love so much, and let's unfold them within the context that God originally gave them to us. And so this is something I'm very excited about, and I can't wait to get into it tonight. So let's go to Isaiah chapter number 7, and we're going to begin here. Isaiah chapter number 7. Allow me just a couple of minutes tonight to take time to establish, if you will, the context even within Isaiah chapter number 7. As we study a verse of Scripture, I hope that when you are studying the Bible yourself, that you don't just lift Scripture, uh, one Scripture from here and one Scripture from here. That is what we call proof texting, where you find a Scripture that suits your need and you pick that up and you lift it out of context and you put it together with a bunch of other things, because you really can't understand what the passage means unless you read the whole book and you can't understand the whole book. Uh, Or rather, if you read the whole chapter, and you can't understand the chapter unless you read the whole book, and you can't understand the whole book unless you read the whole Bible and put it all together. We're not going to do that all tonight, but tonight we do want to just lay a little bit of a foundation. Now, without getting too deep in all of the details, Israel at this point in time in its history is backslidden. This is a terminology that is later used by other prophets where they would talk about them being backslidden. They have slidden back from a place that God has brought them to. Now it just turned cold this week, and, and uh, somebody I heard somebody already tell me that it's going to snow this weekend. And I don't know I don't know if that's, that's going to happen or not, but thank you, Brother Duff. I would be very happy if it snowed. I love snow. In fact, if it's going to be cold, it might as well snow. I'll never forget uh, uh, when I was a, uh, uh, a young teenager, I was, it was probably my second, third winter of driving, and I had an S10 pickup truck. It was a a manual stick shift, and uh, those things, if you, those things are fun in the snow. Let me just say it that way. Those things are fun in the snow. No weight in the back end at all. You could do donuts when you didn't want to do donuts. In fact, I did donuts when I didn't want to do donuts on a few occasions. Thank God, never ran into anything. But I remember it snowed one day, and I was coming home from school. And uh, I, was, I was still 16 years old, or 17 years old maybe, and uh, I was coming through my neighborhood and in my neighborhood there was a stop sign and uh, the stop sign was on an incline. And so I pulled up to the stop sign and uh, engaged the clutch and uh, uh, put, it, put it back in the first gear and I stopped at the stop sign like a good, uh, like a good driver who just came through driver's ed and got his license. And when I stopped at the stop sign, my truck immediately slid back down the hill. And so I I, I rode back up to the stop sign and uh, uh, engaged the clutch and uh, tried to do it a little bit less and uh, tried to kick the the gas. But by the time I hit the gas, I was already sliding backwards, and that just made me slide even more off as I went back. And I did that three times. And uh, so... The Bible says that Israel was backslidden, meaning they had made forward progress, but as they had approached God and the ways of God, uh, just like me in that truck, I was trying to get home, but when I stopped, I kept sliding farther and farther away from where my destination was. And spiritually, this is where they were. I finally made it through that trial right there. I just... uh, I uh, did what I had seen my parents do when they needed God to come through in a pinch, and I revved it up about a half a block away, and I just never engaged the clutch, and ran right through that stop sign, went over the hill, up, and uh, said, Jesus, as I went over there and looked both ways, and thank God nobody was coming, and uh, so a moral of the story is if you're backsliding, just say Jesus and keep going forward, amen, amen. But Israel was backslidden. They had slid back into, uh, in some instances, gross idolatry, gross iniquity, um, sins that that were, were not even things that were going on among the heathens that they called, ironically, the heathens, the Canaanites, those that worshipped the god, the idols of the other gods, human sacrifices, literally. Uh, Jeremiah says that there's there's going to be a day where you are literally, he said you're going to walk so far away from God that you will find yourself such a low point that you you will eat the flesh of your own children. And we cannot even begin to talk about how gross, how far cultures and societies have to go to get to that place. But they had come to that place. So Israel was a divided nation. They, after the time of Rehoboam, of course, course divided. And the northern part of Israel uh, uh, is most often referred to as Israel. Sometimes in this narrative, it's going to be referred to as Ephraim or Samaria. The south, where Jerusalem was, was referred to as Judah. And they were both the people of God by bloodline but not by faith, because when the north split off from the south, they decided that they would never go back to Jerusalem to worship Jehovah, and so they built for themselves their own idols, and they worshiped those idols, and they totally replaced, and uh, they replaced God and, and Jehovah and worship and the Mosaic law. They totally replaced it and tried to make their own pathway to God, wanted to go outside God's law. And of course, so, so there was all kinds of perversions and pollutions that went on there. Isaiah is a prophet to both of these nations. And Judah remains. Judah, there were, there were other tribes, a couple others that were there with Judah, but, but the large segment of the southern portion of Israel is of the tribe of Judah, and so it's referred to as Judah. So when you're reading in your Bible and you hear the king of Israel or the king of Judah It's making a a differentiation here. They're both of the blood lineage of Abraham, but here the kingdom is divided. And so this is the era in which we find ourselves. So Isaiah opens up, and God begins to tell them, I am repulsed by your worship. Because, Judah, you're showing up at the temple, and you're offering sacrifices But he said, it's a stench in my nostrils. And God literally rebuked their worship. He literally shut them down and said, because when you go home, you're living another life. You're living a a lascivious life, a a life of immorality, a life of idolatry. And you're only doing this, you're only going through the motions. And God said, "I I hate it. So stop it. Your your songs are coming up to heaven. And he literally says, I'm plugging my ears. I I cannot hear you. I do not hear you. And so he rebukes them. And the sins of Israel are listed. And he goes on in chapters 2 and chapter uh, 4, or chapters 1, chapter 3, and chapter 5. And he will list some of the sins that Israel has been complicit in. And then he begins in chapter 2 of the book to give some prophetic prophecies, uh, 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 some future predictions of things that are going to come to pass and some things that are going to happen. And then in chapter number six, Isaiah the prophet is introduced or seen. And Isaiah has this incredible experience with the Lord. And he says, uh, uh, you know, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. And he begins to tell of this vision that he has, this moment, this experience where he sees the heavenly host of God that is crying, holy, holy, holy. And the angel comes, touches his lips with the coal. And in this moment, God commissions Isaiah to be the prophet, the mouthpiece of God, To go preach. Now, this this sounds like, oh, this is cool, this is exciting, this is great. But if you realize the nature of the people that Isaiah was going to preach to, you realize that right there at that moment, he he was almost destined to fail in a popularity contest. Nobody was looking for a prophet of God, nobody was in the market for a true prophet. They were looking for preachers who, who could itch their ears, who could just soothe their conscience and let them continue on living in their sin. But there is such gross dysfunction spiritually within the nation of Israel that Isaiah signs up for it, but the, the, the experience that God deemed necessary is you've got to have a true experience with God. So he has his face-to-face encounter. he's commissioned, here am I send me and he de- he determines that he is going to be God's prophet for the people for that day. Can I tell you? It doesn't matter how dark the world gets. We need a voice, a mouthpiece of God in this day and age. And we ought to thank God for every time that somebody is declaring the truth of Jesus Christ or the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank God for that. I thank God for that, and I thank God everywhere that it is proclaimed, even if it's proclaimed by a person who is not a, 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 a have maintained the fullness of truth, whether that be a governmental person or armies or militaries or celebrities or politicians or whatever, but when they give honor and acknowledge God, amen, with a true intent, we ought to thank God for that, but we ought to especially thank God For men and women who will be the mouthpiece of God, thus saith the Lord, that are declaring, amen, the word of God in the midst of darkness. And so Isaiah is resigned to be one of these individuals. So the kingdom is divided. I want to, before we get into chapter 7 text, I want you to go to the next slide. And I want us to set up some of the main characters of Isaiah chapter number 7. When we read the book of Isaiah, it's, it's so beautifully written, and it's translated from the original Hebrew into English, of course, but the English that it's translated into in the King James version is English that's over 400 years old. Uh, I put up on my uh, wall today a, a new fixture that um, I'm really excited about. I finally got it framed. I've had it for many years, but I have a folio page out of a 1613 edition of the authorized version, King James version. So if you want to sometimes take a peek inside my office, you can see the page there. And uh, you can, it's interesting to read because it's the same text as in your Bible, but the font and the typeset is different. So for instance, uh, lowercase s's look all like f's. They will all look like f's. And so it's interesting in 400 years how The language has changed, not just the spelling, amen, but actually how they would do the lettering. And of course, with that, it's overstating the point that some of those definitions are lost in translation. So while I love the KJV, and uh, that's my primary source and reading, and I think it has the most truest translation, it is not sometimes the best explanation for a contemporary mind in English. So you've got to sometimes say, okay, what's going on here? And you've got to pause. And uh, it's like, have you, has anybody in here ever read Charles Dickens or Shakespeare? Shakespeare? How about Shakespeare? That's, that's, really, that's really one there. And, uh, you know, their vocabulary was much more broad than our vocabulary is today, even within the same language. And uh, you read Shakespeare, don't, don't read Shakespeare. You just, it'll just take you too long, you know, kind of thing. It's just too confusing there. No. I'm not totally joking, but sort of. Um, but so sometimes we've got to pause and say, okay, what did I just read here? So I want to set this up. There are some main characters of chapter 7 that you've got to understand are taking place. The first is, of course, Isaiah the prophet. We've already established that. The next is Ahaz, which is king of Judah. Remember the divided kingdom. Ahaz is down king of Judah. And then Pekah is the king of Israel or the northern, the northern part of part of the nation of Israel that we would see the children of Israel now. But he's also the son of Remaliah. And his name is only called uh, once or twice, and the rest of the time he's referred to as the son of Remaliah. God doesn't even acknowledge him by name. He just references who he is. And uh, one time he calls him, he's just a, a, a smoldering stump of firewood kind of thing. He doesn't even give him much regard. And then the next one is Resin who is the king of Syria, or Aram, depending on what translation you're reading there. He is the king of Syria, which is right north, uh, literally north of Samaria or, or Israel, the divided kingdom portion of Israel. And then you have another man by the name of Tobiel, and he is a, an attempted puppet king of Judah. And so here's what you have playing out. We'll read through that, but let me describe what you have playing out when we approach the text. The nation of Israel is divided, north and south. The northern part of Israel is, is led by the son of Remaliah. He has made an alliance, or a conspiracy, as the text says, with the king of Syria. And of course, the capital of Syria was Damascus. The capital of Israel was Samaria. And so these two have come together. And so you'll hear about Damascus and Samaria. They've come together and they've made an alliance. And uh, they've had this sort of conglomerate, conspiracy together. And they decide that the king of Assyria... Now, we're not talking about Syria. He's not on the board yet. The king of Assyria is going to attack them, going to threaten them. You've heard of Shennacherib and and his kingdom and and the other kingdoms of Assyria. They were quite mighty. They were going to attack them. And so they felt like the best way to withstand it was for them to go down and to fight Jerusalem and to conquer Jerusalem and to divide Jerusalem. And then they were going to set up their puppet king, who's Tabeel, And he was going to rule in Jerusalem. And then if they had all these areas, then maybe they could fight against Assyria. Folks, this is messed up. Somebody say messed up. So the people of God are divided. And now a part of them have an allegiance with a pagan culture and and, 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 and area. And then they decide that we're going to go back. And we are going to destroy Jerusalem. And we're going to destroy Judah. And we're going to divide it up, up into however we want it. And we're going to put whoever we want in charge there. And and, and this is going to be what's going to give us power and and allow us to be invincible among the other armies of God. Now, if you don't think that that kind of messed up scenario plays out in the spirit world, in our contemporary modern day church, then, then you're not paying attention Because the New Testament even talks about it. How that there would be false prophets... That would come in, creep in among you. And they would make to themselves disciples. And that there would be people who would come and try to divide the house of God. Making alliances with uh, Belial. And and aligning themselves with these pagan worldly kind of philosophies and mentality. So this is the setting by which we approach tonight. So let's go Isaiah chapter number 7. And it come to pass... In the day of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that in the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told, the house of David, who's the house of David? That's talking about the king's house there in Jerusalem, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. Now, Again, the language is confusing. That's Samaria or Israel. He's confederate with ethereum, and his heart was moved in the heart of his people. And the tree of the wood, trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Here it is. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth to meet Ahaz, thou, and share Jeshub, thy son. That's Isaiah's firstborn son, or the first son that we read about at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fooler's field. So so God has come to Isaiah and said, Isaiah, I want you to take your son. Don't go by yourself. Take your son. Go down to Ahaz. And God tells Ahaz, or tells him where Ahaz is going to be. He's out there by the conduit of the upper pool. It surmised that he was there. Hezekiah did this. He was there trying to find a way to totally seal off the city, to make himself invincible from the impending enemies that were going to lay siege upon the city. And so Isaiah comes there, he finds him there, verse four, and said unto him, say unto him, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted. Here it is. For the two tails of the smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria, and the son of Rimaliah. So see, he doesn't even call him by name. Because Syria, Ephraim, the son of Rimaliah, have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make us a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tobiel. Thus saith the Lord God, and here it is in verse 7. It shall not stand; neither shall it come to pass. I love the way it says uh, uh, it, it, it says it here later on. He says, "It shall not stand; neither shall it come to pass." For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Resin—that's the king of Syria—and within three score and five years, or sixty-five years, shall Ephraim be broken, that it shall not be a people. So Isaiah here is prophesying by the word of God that Israel is going to be carried away captive, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son, that's Pekah, the king of Israel. If ye will not believe it, surely ye shall not be established. I like to read it here, if you will, that same verse 9 in the NIV And he says this, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. And that last phrase, he says it this way, they say it this way, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. (laughs) Hello? If you don't stand firm in your faith, you're not going to stand at all. At all. You've got to know what you believe. You've got to know who your God is. You've got to have a confidence. And then once you know it, you can't waver. Don't be afraid. Don't run at the first sound of offense. But you, stay, you stand on the promise and the word of God. Because if you don't do that, the enemy's going to come chasing you around and knock you around every chance it can get. Can I tell you, there ought to be a message in that for us. That we've got to stop running. But sometimes you just got to stop and say, no, enough is enough. I'm putting my trust and my faith in God and take a stand for what is right. Take a stand for your faith. So Isaiah is telling Ahaz, Ahaz, you have to stand for the things that God has. Here's the problem. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. If you don't have faith, you got a problem. You've got a major problem. And this is where we are people of faith. (laughs) If we don't have a faith, we're not going to stand, folks. If we're just coming to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night so we can see one another and, 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 and pat one another on the back and, a, and, and give each other accomplishments about the great things that we're doing in our lives, folks, that's not going to last. But we have a faith. We are drawn together by a faith in God. I'm glad that we're not here together because we're of the same type of personality. We're of the same type of person. We don't look like, amen. We don't all have the same education. We're not brought together by our social status, amen. But we got people of all different ages, all different creeds, all different types of ideas, all different backgrounds, all different races, all different ethnicities, amen. But we are brought together by what? Our faith in the name of Jesus Christ and the blood of the Lamb. That's what brings us together. Amen. And so we've got to have a faith. So here Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, if you don't stand in your faith, you're not going to stand at all. But Ahaz's faith is so gone. He, he, he's let it lapse. It's, it's gone so far. And so look at what he says here in verse number 10. And here now we come to the sign, if you will, of Emmanuel. Moreover, the Lord spake again. Unto Ahaz saying, ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it, either in the depth or in the height above. Now this is an interesting thing, folks, playing out here. Because Ahaz is a wicked king. God literally is coming to Ahaz. And he's giving him a word of prophecy and saying the enemy of the people of God are not going to stand. Stand fast in your faith. Now, I don't know about you, but let me just pause a moment and tell you this is how great the mercy of God is. Don't ever let the devil tell you because you haven't been living right, amen, that God's word is not still for you. <laughs> or God's promises are not still, amen. are are, are still spoken for you. God comes to Ahaz, who is a wicked king, who has forsaken his faith, who has walked away on God, and God says, hey, there's a conspiracy out there that is trying to attack My people that is trying to attack my city that is trying to attack my temple. And even though you aren't living the way you ought to live, I'm here to tell you, I've got a word of victory that they are not going to be victorious. Amen. They shall not defeat it, but God is going to prevail. Now, now Ahaz isn't even living like he should live. Can I tell you sometimes we, we ought not, we ought not make a mistake by not understanding the justice of God. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We ought to understand that. But right now, we are living in a measure of mercy and a measure of grace. And as long as you have got breath in your body, amen, there is still room at the cross. If Christ would instruct me to forgive my brethren and my sister and those that I don't know 70 times 7 every single day, amen, then how much more is His mercy and grace toward me when I fail hallelujah you may not be living where you you ought to be living you may not be doing what you ought to be doing but if you are still a child of God if your body has been a temple of the living God God says hey I'm not going to let it be defiled I will come to your defense what an awesome God folks this is a great God This is something that we saw, one of of the things, and I preached about it before, the mercy of manna. God takes the children of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness, and he says, I'm going to feed you every day with what the psalmist calls angels' food. It fell down from heaven every morning. It came down from heaven. He takes them immediately to the border of the promised land or the sanctuary and says, all this is yours. And they rejected the promise of God. They rejected what God was trying to give them. But the mercy of manna was that it kept falling every day. Even when they rejected God, God said, I'm still going to let my mercy rain on you every day. I'm still going to let it rain on you every morning. Come on. I wonder if I have a testimony in here that knows. Even when I haven't done right, God's mercy and God's grace, hallelujah, has been laid out before me every day. Every morning it's new. Come on. This is the word of God. And so Isaiah, I can imagine Isaiah he signed up for this thinking, God, this isn't the this isn't popular job. This isn't the one that I want to be. Amen. Nobody's going to like me, but I'll do it. And then the word of God comes to him. I can imagine him saying, well, how would Ahaz not want this? He hadn't lived like he ought to live. And yet God is offering him his whole defenses. So Isaiah goes to him and he's so excited. And he says, here it is. And he says, this is what's going to happen. And then the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah and says, Isaiah... Ask God for a sign, or rather Ahaz. Ahaz, ask God for a sign. What's he saying? He's saying, ask God for proof. Ask God for evidence. And we don't preach about, we don't preach like this very often. But in this particular instance, the prophet told Ahaz, Ahaz, God's going to do a great thing in your life, and you need to ask God for a sign. Isn't that what he said? Ask it, whether it's in the deep or in the height above. You know what he's saying? Hey, ask God for a shooting star. (laughs) Ask God for something major to come up out of the deep. Ask God whatever you want. This is God literally inviting and saying, I want you to ask me to prove myself. Sometimes we we walk around on eggshells. We're always worried about what's going to happen and everything. And here God is saying, hey, I'm God. I'll be your defender. I'll be your provider. I'll be your way maker. And oh, by the way, just ask me for a sign. Come on, somebody. Ask me for God is waiting to prove himself. Not only to the world, to you individually, to me individually. God is waiting. Hey, ask God for a sign. And God said, I'll give you for a sign. Come on. Sometimes we need to bring our problems to the altar and say, okay, God, here it is. My faith is in you. My trust is in you. And I'm laying it down. Whatever you want to do, it's your your prerogative. But God, I'm going to take you at your word. And your word says, prove me and see if I don't pour out a blessing. And so, God, I've come asking you for a sign. Let me know that you're still there. Let me know that you still hear my prayer. Let me know that I'm not too far gone. Let me know that your grace is still for me. Let me know that revival's still here. Let me know that your healing still works. Ask God for a sign. Oh, I wish somebody would get a holy boldness to walk in to the throne room of God and say, God, I don't understand everything, but God, I'm asking you to show approve yourself, yourself in my life. God is waiting to prove himself. He's waiting to prove himself in your life. He's waiting to prove himself in your mind and in your spirit and in your heart. God is just sitting back waiting for it. I'll never forget. And, folks, I, I'm not making this stuff up. I, I believe this with all of my heart. I believe this with all of my heart. I'll never forget. There's been times, in my, there's been things that I have prayed for, amen, that haven't come to pass. But there's been other things, amen, where I thought, well, I don't need to ask God for that. I don't need to ask God for that. And God did it just to sort of prove me wrong. God proved me wrong. I've told the story, I think, a couple times here. My wife and I were traveling. We were evangelizing. We needed a new vehicle. And I had budgeted out a certain amount of money. And I had set aside a certain amount of money. And, and my wife told me, she leaned over to me, and she said, you know what I'd really like to have? And I said, what's that? And she said, I'd really like to have a Toyota Sequoia. And I rebuked her. I said, Janelle, you're being greedy. (laughs) I did. I I promise. I'm I was bad. And I said, You can't do that. You're being greedy. All we can afford, maybe, is an old used minivan. (laughs) She was like, Oh, I don't want an old used minivan. And you know what God did? Long story short, God gave us a Toyota Sequoia for the amount of money I had budgeted for an old used minivan. I I rebuked my wife. I forbid. I said I told Janelle, I said you can't even pray for that. I said that's being greedy before God. I told her not to even pray for that, and I just said we're going to just pray for a car. And God's like, "Well, you be careful." And you know what? I've never told her not to pray for anything again because hey, you pray whatever, let God. God is just waiting to prove himself. And so here's what happened. Look at what happened. Let's go to verse 12, and here it is. But Ahaz said, look at what Ahaz said. I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Now, we can lose this in translation because when we read the phrase, I will not tempt the Lord, it sounds like a good thing, but that is not what is going on here. Isaiah was saying to Ahaz, Ahaz, God is waiting to prove himself. You just ask God for a sign. Whatever in heaven, whatever in the earth, you ask God for a sign. And Ahaz was so far removed from his faith in God that he rejected God's proposal because he would not let God get the glory or God get the credit. And he said, I will not, I won't even let God have a chance to give me a sign. I'm not even going to go before the Lord. I'm not even going to allow God. Because Ahaz, we'll see later on, had been in cohorts with the king of Assyria. And he was in cohorts with Assyria against the Syrian king and the king of Israel. Folks, this was a messed up state. This was a messed up state. Nation, this was a messed up people of God, and their leader said to, to reject the word of God. Here is a, a word from God, a mouth, the oracle of God, hand delivered to him on a platter. Ask God for a sign, and he has the audacity to stiff arm God and say, "I'm not even going to allow God to come into the conversation. I'm not even going to allow Jehovah to come into the, into the into the 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 uh, the formula of how." we're going to get out of this. I'm not going to give God glory. (laughs) Amen. But thank God. Amen. That Isaiah didn't stop there and God didn't stop there. He said, hear ye now, O house of David. He's talking to Ahaz. And not only Ahaz, but all of his cohorts. Is it a small thing for you to weary man? But will ye weary my God also? He said, how dare you? You, you, You're trying the patience of man. But now you are flirting with everlasting destruction. Because you are trying the patience of God. But then we come to verse 14. And Isaiah now says, look, Ahaz, this isn't about you anymore. This isn't even for your benefit. But this is for the benefit of the future children of God. Therefore, he says, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Ahaz, you don't want anything to do with God. You don't want God in the equation. But can I tell you, you're nothing. And God is everything. And God is going to prove Himself. No matter how arrogant you are. No matter how hard you push against it. God is going to have a sign. Ha! And then He says, and now He brings this unbelievable sign. Here's the sign. Behold, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This was mind blowing. This was mind altering. They had never heard the description, they knew there would be a Messiah. They knew there would be a king. They knew there would be a judge. But this is this is new. This, this is something new. He's saying now the, the, the Messiah will be born of a human woman, but she will be a virgin. And, and this will not be a man, just another man. But this will be something altogether different. This will be something done by the Spirit of God. This will be done by the ultimate, absolute God of eternity. And His name shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I don't care what Rezin says. I don't care what Pika says. I don't care what Ahaz says. They can all turn their back on God. But God said, I'm going to have a church. I'm going to have a people. I'm going to have a sign. I'm going to come down and do something glorious. And oh, by the way, Ahaz, oh, by the way, house of David, there's somebody coming to replace you. Ahaz, you may be sitting on the throne right now, but there's another lineage out of David that's coming to replace you. And when he gets here, he's going to sit on the throne. Amen. And later on, he lets us know, and of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Can I tell you, you better be careful before you push God away in your life. Come on! Don't don't, don't stiff arm God and say no. I I don't want God. I don't want God to have anything to do with this in my life. Be careful when you push God out of quadrants of your life. When you push God out of segments of your life. Don't ever push Him out of your career. Don't ever push Him out of your relationships and your romance and your marriage. Don't ever push Him out of the secret places of your life. But no, rather you ought to invite Him in and say, God, I want you to prove Yourself. I want you to show Yourself mighty in me in every part of my life. So Israel's in a messed up state. But that cannot keep God from doing what God is going to do. Can I tell you, that gives me faith tonight. Because it doesn't matter how bad it gets. It doesn't matter how dark it gets. It doesn't matter what happens in this world. I'm not even worried about it. You know why? Because God is going to finish everything that He started. So He goes on. And He says, Butter and honey shall He eat that He may know to refuse evil and choose evil. The good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. And that's a prophecy there to Ahaz, saying, Ahaz, God has got a plan and God's going to do a work in spite of you, in spite of your rebellion, in spite of your arrogance, in spite of your pride so he gives a prophecy that Messiah is going to come. This is beautiful. We, we, we can't spend enough time on this, but we'll come back to it later. This is an incredible, extraordinary prophecy that I, Isaiah has given. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Now, there are people who would deny the virgin birth. And one of the things that they would deny the virgin birth based on is, if you'll go back to chapter 7 and verse 14, The word that is translated virgin in this passage of scripture is used about six times in the Old Testament. Only one other place is it also translated virgin in the KJV and in other places it's translated as maid or young woman or a young damsel. And so those that would deny the supernatural and they try to explain everything away, they creep into the church and try to explain away the supernatural phenomenon, they they say, sure, they look at this, and say, there's no way that this could be it, so there must be some explanation for it. And the explanation they've given is that, well, see, that word doesn't necessarily mean a virgin. It could just mean a young woman. But the problem is, is that if Isaiah was saying, behold, a young woman is going to have a child, what kind of sign is that? Young women have children all the time. There's no significance to that. How are you going to know? Well, another young woman had. How are you going to know that? And then and then we understand that the Jews understood it to be a virgin. Because when the Jews, uh, uh, during the, the period of silence and after the Babylonian captivity and they escaped, the remnant went to Alexandria in uh, Egypt. There was a large community of Jews. And, of course, Greek was the nature and the culture of that day. And the Jews lost their ability to speak Hebrew, and so they translated the Hebrew text of the Old Testament into Greek so that they could read it because the Jews only knew how to speak Greek in that time. when there was actually such a community there. That's one reason why it makes sense that Mary and Joseph would have fled to Egypt with Jesus because there was a large Jewish community and they would have been safety in numbers there. Plus, it was a prophecy that they had to fulfill. But, but they, the Jews that translated it into Greek, they translated this passage of Scripture into virgin. And then when Matthew references that in the other gospel accounts, they make sure to know, hey, she she says, how can this be? Seeing I've never known a man. You can't get much more plain than that. And the Lord said, this is the work of the Holy Ghost. This is, this is the prophecy. And, and so they knew exactly what Isaiah was saying. It was something so unbelievable, extraordinary, that you could not even fathom it. Amen. But it was God saying, I'm going to give you undeniable proof. Can I tell you, when God proves himself, it won't make sense that doctors won't be able to explain it. The academics won't be able to articulate it. Amen. It's just going to be. Amen. And I'm thankful that I serve the God that still heals. And the God that still delivers. And the God that still can raise from the dead. That's the God that we serve. Oh, clap your hands unto the Lord tonight. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So God is with Us. This was something that was progressively understood. Moses had an understanding of it. Abraham saw a a segment of it. David had an understanding of it. They knew that. But now it was being made plain for all of Israel. Emmanuel is God with us. God. Who's God? The eternal, absolute, transcendent, unknowable. Amen. The invisible God, he has come down and dwell with us. And so this, this was a powerful, powerful thing that they would hold on to. Okay, let's continue on. Verse number 16. For behold, the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. The lamb that thou would horse shall be forsaken of both her kings. And the verse 17. The Lord shall bring upon thee, that's Ahaz, upon thy people, upon thy father's house, Days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Syria. He's saying, The king of Syria is going to come upon you also. Why? Because Ahaz trusted in Assyria and not in God. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Syria. And this is this is the poetry that he's He's, he's speaking this, uh, pulling this in. They shall come and they shall rest, all of them in the desolate valleys, in the holes of the rocks, and upon the thorns, and upon the bushes. And in the same day shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired, namely, by them beyond the river by the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it shall also consume the beard. And so he's saying, as a razor would shave the head, so is the effect of the king of Syria that you put your trust in going to be upon the land. It is going to raise the land, literally. It is going to come through because you would not trust in God now. He said, God will take care of those two kings, but you will suffer the consequences right now here in your own land. And he says in verse 21, And it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. This is not a good portrait. He's saying they're reduced to that. And it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that they shall give. He shall eat butter. For butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. Now, folks, let's pause here. I love butter and honey. But I like butter on something. I have outgrown the phase when I was a child of going to the kitchen and taking a bite out of the stick of butter, I have outgrown that phase. This is how bad, he says, it's going to be. The land will be raised. The vegetation will be gone. And the very thing that God offered as a blessing for you, think about that. You will go to the land of promise, which shall be flowing with milk and with honey. He said that was a promise that God was giving to you. Those were Those were great amenities that God was promising you. He said, but because you don't trust in God, everything else is going to be taken. And all you're left with is milk and milk and more milk and more milk and more milk and butter and honey. And you're going to be stuck eating that because you're starving. I've got to have more, but nothing to put it on. Nothing to have savory with it. Nothing to sweeten it by. It's just going to be that. This is not a good thing. And in that it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines and a thousand silverlings. It shall even be for briars and thorns with arrows and with bows shall men come thither because all the land shall become briars and thorns, and on all hills that shall be digged with the mattocks, there shall not come thither the fear of briars and thorns, but it shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle. And he's saying your land is going to be desolate. Your land is going to be in this wilderness stage. You're not going to know it. You're going to miss What's going on? The sign that God is given is going to bypass you. You're going to miss out on what God is doing. Can I tell you, we have got to be careful that we never distance God when God is coming with a word for us. That we don't say, God, hey, I I like what you're doing here, but I don't want you in this area of my life. Because when we push God out and we don't allow God to get the glory in our life, God says you'll lose everything else. And you'll, you may still retain some of the blessing that I gave you, but it's going to be sour in your mouth. You're going to be frustrated with it. Just like he did when he sent them quail. He said, you want quail? I'll give you so much quail till it's coming out of your nostrils. I'll, 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 I'll give you so much until you're putrefied with it and you're, you, you stink with it. We've got to be careful that we don't say, God, I don't want you to glory in my own life. I don't want you to glory in this area of my life. You say, well, I don't do that. I, I, here I am. I'm in church. Well, we can do that when God comes to us and speaks to us about things. And we say, God, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to be in this position where I have to trust you, where God gets all the glory. Can I tell you, when you put God first in your life, you step out on a limb. When, when God calls you into the kingdom of God and the service of God, whether it's financial, Whether it's relational, you step out on a limb when you say, God, I'm going to put you first in my life. And you take a risk of what's going to happen. But if you will allow God to prove himself, God will prove himself. And it's the same way, the thing I've learned in my life, the same way I am with my wallet, and the same way I am with my money, when I say, okay, God, I really need to hold on to this, but God, I'm going to give it to you, and I'm giving it to you now, and I need you to prove yourself. Guess what? God proves himself. And when he proves himself, God gets the glory. It's the same thing when you lay down a relationship that you ought not have, or you lay down some kind of interest or a hobby that's taken too much time, that's robbing from God, you say, okay, God, this is getting between you and I's relationship. And I'm laying this down, but I need you to prove yourself. God will prove himself. Oh, hallelujah. I don't know about you, but I don't want to disarm God. Distance him in my life. Because this is what's going to happen is you will you find yourself in a destitute in a wilderness in this place. Stand together with me. This, this is a beautiful, beautiful picture of of the power of the portrait of the mercy and grace of God in the context here. And we've just covered one chapter here of what God is doing. But God says, no matter how bad you are, no matter what's going on, I'm still giving you a sign. Somebody said, you need a sign, here's your sign. Here's your sign. Turn to somebody and tell them, here's your sign. Here's your sign. You need God. Here's your sign. Ahaz, here's your sign that you need God. Ahaz, here's your sign that you haven't always made the best choice, but God was always the best choice. For unto us a son is born. Amen. Behold, a virgin's going to conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Hallelujah. Can we pray right now? Lord, in Jesus' name, I thank you for your word.